0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions by Astra Taylor. Over the last decade, author, activist, and DIG guest host Astra Taylor has helped shift the national conversation on topics including technology, inequality, indebtedness, and democracy. The essays collected here reveal the range and depth of her thinking, with Taylor tackling the rising popularity of socialism, the problem of automation, the politics of listening, the possibility of rights for the natural and non-human world, the future of the university— the temporal challenge of climate catastrophe, and more. Addressing some of the most pressing social problems of our day, Taylor invites us to imagine how things could be different while never losing sight of the strategic question of how change actually happens. Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions, by Astra Taylor, out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This year, Bessemer became famous as the Birmingham suburb where Amazon warehouse workers waged an audacious campaign to unionize that failed in the face of overwhelming opposition from one of the largest corporations on earth. Workers and organizers inspired people everywhere, not only because they took on Amazon, but because they framed their struggle to unionize the majority black workforce as simultaneously a fight for the working class and for black freedom. In doing so, they tapped into a long history of radical struggle in Alabama including the Alabama Communist Party's fights throughout the 1930s to organize sharecroppers, mine and mill workers, and unemployed people, and to fight widespread and absolutely brutal racist, anti-worker, anti-communist repression at the hands of police and vigilantes alike. Today's episode is my interview with scholar Robin D.G. Kelly on his classic book, Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression first published in 1990. This book is a mind-altering history to read. The Alabama communists and their allied organizations won major victories, but they also lost many fights and lost many lives as well. This year's loss at Bessemer was devastating. Hammer and Ho reminds us that class struggle and Black freedom have never come easy. Before we get started with the interview, please do support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig if you don't do so already and can afford to do so. I know that some of you listening cannot afford to donate. That is absolutely fine. We do not paywall anything because we want everyone to be able to listen regardless of your ability to pay. But if you depend on the dig for our in-depth analysis, lengthy conversations about things, issues that matter to you and you can't afford to contribute, please do so because that's what allows us to post every episode without a paywall. Even $5 a month is huge. Larger contributions, of course, are also welcome, and we have books, tote bags, and mugs to send you in the mail as a thank you. Okay, here's Robin D.G. Kelly, a professor of history at UCLA and the author of numerous articles and books, including the book we are discussing today. Hammer and hoe, Alabama communists during the Great Depression. Robin D.G. Kelly, welcome to The Dig.
1: Thank you so much, Dan. It's great to be here with you.
0: Let's start by setting the scene. What sort of place was Birmingham, an area where deposits of iron ore, coal, steel earned it the nickname the Pittsburgh of the South. How did these industries make the Birmingham area distinct from the rest of Alabama? And then how did these industries being located in Alabama, in the heart of the Deep South, how did that make Birmingham a very different sort of industrial metropolis than Pittsburgh?
1: Well, first of all, Birmingham is a New South city, which means that there wasn't really any Birmingham to speak of as a major metropolis until after the Civil War. And it was precisely the discovery of deposits of iron ore and coal, everything you need to basically connect all the supply chains to make steel. And steel itself, you know, through the Bessemer system, you know, was kind of a new phenomenon, you know, the production of steel, mass amounts of steel. Uh, and so so you have that. You have the geography. Uh, you have the railroads that move the steel. Now that you have all your raw materials, what you need is labor. And in the post-Civil War period, there's a real struggle over labor. You know, we, we think of the end of Reconstruction as 1877 and the compromise of 1877 and the back dealings of the federal government. But in fact... After 1877, that struggle continues around labor, biracial, multiracial labor organizing, and Alabama is one of the centers of it. The Knights of Labor is there. The Greenback Labor Party is there. And they are fighting, fighting, fighting for mine workers as the mining industry is taking off. Um, fighting uh, for farmers, the populist movement, and sharecroppers and tenant farmers. They are fighting for various Industrial workers, you know, textile industry hasn't really taken off yet. But they're workers who are organizing and also fighting for political power. And so you got to think of that region as also being a site where capital is trying to discipline the labor force, you know, to create a cheap, available labor force in the region to basically take this coal out the ground, take the iron ore out the ground, and work in iron factories, in steel factories, pipe fitting, all all the various different factories that came out of of this. So that's the the, the labor context. A huge conglomerate emerges: Tennessee Coal and Iron Company, which has subsidiaries. There's other steel companies, Republic Steel, and others are there. But what they have to figure out is how do we Tamp down labor insurrection? How do we discipline this labor force? And how do we keep them in the same place? So that required several things. One, the use of convict labor, which in Alabama was a, a big thing for the coal industry at first as transitional. That is really a captive labor force, almost entirely black labor. The other thing is you had to create this is a bad word for it, but kind of corporate welfare. That is that Tennessee Coal and Iron Company had the, I guess, experience in its relationship to U.S. Steel, because it's kind of a subsidiary of U.S. It's outgrowth of U.S. Steel, had to figure out a way, a way to own the workers in the way that landlords own sharecroppers. So you build shotgun houses. You basically create commissaries. You provide script instead of cash. So people can buy the supplies they need and the food stuff. And you create an armed guard that protects these compounds. So it's it's not that the city of Birmingham itself became that. It's that the kind of industrial suburbs around it, Bessemer being one of them, um, and and parts of the Birmingham region had these basically company towns, Ensley, places like that were sort of at the edge of the city. And then, finally, you use race, which always works, almost always works. I shouldn't say always works. But you use race to discipline this labor force. You have um, formerly enslaved people who are really at the heart of doing the hardest, most difficult work in the mines. You have working-class whites, some of whom have been dispossessed from the land. You have an increase in European immigration we always think of european immigration coming to new york and philadelphia places like that but a significant number ended up in birmingham precisely because of the presence of industrial jobs you had people from southern europe bulgarians greeks czechs you know you had uh, people from western europe you know all showing up many of them working there and in fact a lot of italians both Northern Italian, but also a lot of Southern Italians as well, from Sicily, uh, Naples, places like that. And they end up in Birmingham. And some of those Italians and Greek uh, workers often kind of cornered the market on creating alternative stores to the company stores. And they made their money that way. So you're talking about, in the heart of the Deep South, an industrial center with a multiracial Multi-ethnic, multinational working class, but under the heel of white supremacy. You know, because modern, because white supremacy in its most modern form, uh, what my friend and colleague Sierra Haley calls um, kind of Jim Crow capitalism. That's what we what we're seeing: A racially structured labor force, forms of racial violence, privatized police control of the labor force through control of housing, food, wages, um, but also very much tiered in this kind of segregationist setting. And that set up what became known as the Pittsburgh of the South, You know, producing a lot of steel and iron ore. Uh, and And because of that, it also became a hub of transportation because the railroads were moving raw materials and people.
0: It's so striking. Because this is a city that, by the fifties sixties becomes a global icon of the entire southern Jim Crow system and really of this the South, but it's really unlike most places in the south
1: it it definitely is it's it's fairly cosmopolitan i mean it's hard to think of it because we have images of bull Connor and water hoses and dogs but actually if you if you saw a picture of... Of Bo Connor in the nineteen thirties, when he was, you know, commissioner of public safety, you, you know, he's dapper. Got his. He looks suit like on. a dandy, right? He, exactly. He looks like a dandy. <laughs> a lot thinner. Um, and and that is that is Birmingham as a modernizing city, but it's a modernizing city with, uh, un- unlike Atlanta. Atlanta has some of those dimensions, but Birmingham was a modernizing city with an incredibly repressive state apparatus. Um, The violence was there from the get-go. And and why? Well, in coal mining, for example, and coal mines in Alabama are not just situated there, they're actually other parts of the state. Part Tuscaloosa, there's some coal mines. And so coal miners organized through the United Mine Workers. And the United Mine Workers of America were one of the, successful or not, really interracial organizations in that they created a, a, a leadership structure in which you had Black vice presidents, you know, of the, of the unions, of locals. You had, you know, Black and whites in leadership positions. Uh, black workers were still s- subordinate, but they exercised some the control. Richard Davis, one of the most famous UMWA leaders. So in Alabama, even before the Communist Party showed up, there was already a tradition of, of labor militancy, especially in coal mines, um, and iron ore mines as well, but especially in the coal mines in the late 19th century. And then the other thing, which I don't talk about in the book, but I think is worth talking about, is that as a modernizing city uh, in a modernizing region, not too far from Montgomery, Alabama, the capital, you have a, a place with a, a number of universities and colleges. You have college-educated uh, population; those university campuses were sometimes places of reaction, but in, in this case, they were places of of organizing, of of kind of left wing militancy as well. Because you have a large black population, you have organized black civil society institutions. Uh, the churches play; we'll talk about that, but they play a kind of a mixed role. But churches, um, fraternal orders. Mutual benefit associations, various societies, uh, women's groups, all of these represent an incredibly organized Black community. But with that, and this is also very important, is class stratification within that Black community. So you do have a group of Black elites, some of whom actually have the right to vote, you know, and they control that vote. Um, even even after the disfranchisement of the black community, largely after eighteen ninety five in in, um, in Alabama, you do see these sort of circles of people who have various organizations. Some of some of these organizations sort of under the payroll of Tennessee Coal and Iron Company. Some of them are uh, aligned with the kind of black the white political elite rather, um, and so in some ways they see themselves as power brokers they they make this false bargain they say, look you give us limited citizenship rights and we'll keep these negroes in in line we'll teach them how to behave you know we'll make sure that there's no kind of militant organizing going on of course that doesn't work because you can't stop the working class <laughs> Just they just keep going for some reason, um, and so there was always this tension, this class tension within the black community. Let alone the unspoken but obvious tension, class tensions within um, white Birmingham.
0: Then to finish setting the stage, how did Birmingham fit into Alabama's broader social, economic, and political geography at the time? From Mobile on the Gulf Coast to the Black Belt to the heavily white Farmer upcountry,
1: of course. Birmingham is the center, but you know the best. The best way to think about it, and forgive me, but your audience will understand this. <laughs> um, Mobile was kind of Cape Town. M- Montgomery would be like Durban, mm-hmm. um, although Durban was a poor city. But Montgomery was sort of that had that role in that. Montgomery was also an interesting, smaller but cosmopolitan kind of city in Alabama you know, around Johannesburg was the Rand region, uh, which is the mining region. Um, The farming belt, maybe Orange Free State might be the upcountry, although there's way more Africans (laughs) there. But but when you think about it in terms of economic geography than political geography, there's some interesting discoveries. One, the Black Belt region, which had, The counties that had, like, majority Black population, not always, but sometimes. And that's, like, Uh, just
0: north of the coastal region, right? Right.
1: It's Mm -hmm. north of the coastal region. It's sort of Montgomery is situated in the Black Belt. And these were mainly cotton plantations uh, and some, you know, other commodities. But cotton was the main commodity. These plantations were not broken up after the Civil War. So you don't have much in the way of land reform. We do have a lot of sharecroppers, mostly black sharecroppers and some white tenant farmers and sharecroppers as well. But they are, they're not backwaters. These were the centers of political power because the Southern Democrats represented these black belt counties in the, um, not just the state legislature, but certainly in Congress. Um, And they're the ones that are running the New Deal policies. And we can talk about that. This is a dictatorship. Um,
0: the so-called big mules.
1: Right, the big mules, exactly. Big, big mules and industrialists are the sort of the two ruling class um, symbols in, in Alabama. And so they're producing for a global market. You know, a global market that in Great Depression is is depressed, but a global market nonetheless. The upcountry farmers, a lot of them tended to be white landowners or white tenant farmers. This is the Appalachian region on the edge of the mountains or in the mountains. So the land is not as arable. There's not much in the way of, of kind of global production. And because some of those white farmers and workers, some, and there are mines there too. There's mi- there are mines everywhere. <laughs> you could find a mine so every, almost everywhere in Alabama, basically. But there's some mi- it's a mining industry there. There's also in the upcountry area, some of the textile factories are situated there. I mean, Huntsville becomes a center for the Alabama textile industry. Um, So you have poor whites working as wage laborers in that industry, many women in particular. But the upcountry is interesting because because of the level of poverty, the relative poverty, not everyone's poor, uh, and because of the resentment of the big mules. Some of those same farmers felt like The big mules and black people, those who, you know, share crop and produce cotton, are to blame for their poor access to land, for their poverty. And this is a a sentiment that has lasted for a long time because those counties happen to be the ones that had the largest socialist vote. Um, They're the counties that And prior to that, unionist Yes, you. Yes, you read the book carefully.
0: <laughs> My mom's from Alabama. Aliv- My mom's from Birmingham.
1: Oh, so she knows, right? I grew
0: up learning a little about it, and family from Coleman as well.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, Coleman. Coleman was the first place where the Communist Party tried to organize farmers before the Black Belt. Coleman was the first place they went, and it's interesting because you had a lot of uh, deserters who said, "We're not going to fight for the Confederacy." And you're right; they they supported the significant support for the Union side of the Civil War. There was significant support for socialists and Republicans. And so we sometimes err in thinking, oh, poor white people, oh, they're backwards. We know how they're going to vote. There was a reason why they didn't like the Democrats, because Democrats didn't do anything for them. Um, The Democrats represented, you know, despite efforts to prove otherwise during the era of populism, Um, when they had this kind of attempt at fusion, the Democrats still represented in in the state of Alabama, throughout the South, big capital, rural capital,
0: urban capital. But in a dynamic that's familiar today, they, like you said, they simultaneously saw the white business economic elite as a threat alongside the poor Black people.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's amazing how, you know, we could think of it rationally as countervailing tendencies, but- they see them hand in hand. And part of what any left movement had to do in those days was to destroy the myth of this alliance between capital and Black labor. Um, and that goes the same thing with um, the way in which Black workers were perceived to be strikebreakers, you know, and therefore allied with uh, capital. Or Booker T. Washington's position that you know the labor's black labor's best friend is the capitalist because he's the one who's going to hire you. He takes care of you. Uh, white workers are the ones that you need to distrust, right? But of course, we know that the facts don't don't you know fill that out. So this is sort of the racial dynamic of what it meant to begin to organize a left movement in a state like this, Mobile is a little different. Mobile is like the, you know, east Eastern version of New Orleans. It had a large Catholic population. It was um, a port city.
0: It has a Mardi Gras. Uh,
1: it has a Mardi Gras, exactly. It was, you know, Mobile, the name is because it was under French occupation, you know, French co- colonial rule at one point. And it has that history. And interestingly enough, The party didn't make as much headway there, I think, not because there wasn't interest. I think they just didn't have the capacity to really build a strong following there. But they did have some support. And the dock workers, the waterfront workers, were kind of ripe for kind of left politics at the time. But, you know, like any waterfront, race became the kind of Achilles heel in trying to organize because... The jobs are just highly segregated, tiered. And when you start to, and all you have to do is start bringing Black workers or the threat of Black workers to break through that tier. And then you just have nothing but chaos because it's the Black workers who become the victims of uh, racial violence, not, not the company.
0: The, the Communist Party's commitment to Black freedom won them a just remarkably enthusiastic response from black Alabamans, but, but you write that initially, communism was a rather foreign and abstract concept in Alabama, and a heavily, very heavily demonized one as well. What did those early moments look like with white radicals from the North preaching anti-racist revolution to black crowds in Alabama? <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great, I, I'm still
0: surprised no
1: one has bought the movie rights yet, because um, uh, it's a great image. Well, yeah. you know, it took a while. It took a while. So, reconstructing the very, very, very early history of the party, the party begins in 1929, and it was a, a steelworker, I believe Sicilian, named James Girio. And he basically, you know, l- like a lot of Italian immigrants, uh, had a history, knew the history of left organizing from home. Italians were deported because the assumption is that they're all anarchists, you know? And the thing is, a lot of them were. I mean, you know, they they weren't wrong about that. Um, and so he he brings this, and he's contacting, he, like, writes the Communist Party, saying, you know, we're ready to form, we're ready to organize. And then what the, the CP does is it sends people like Tom Johnson and these other uh, white radicals South. Now, here's the thing. They actually didn't go down there to organize black workers. They went there to organize workers with the presumption that black workers are much harder because they're more ignorant. They're kind of backwards. They're easily um, influenced by employers. So they kept saying, it's the white working class that we need to focus on and we're going to bring them into the fold. We're going to, and we're going to, once we get the white working class, then maybe you might be able to get some Black workers as well. Now, this is 1929-30. This is a time when the Communist International, with the help of some Black radicals like Harry Haywood and James the Goomer from South Africa and, and others, are saying in the South, the South is different, that the South Black people represent the majority in the black belt counties. And therefore, they should be the focus of organizing, number one. And number two, they constitute a nation. In much like Georgia, not Georgia, but I'm talking about Georgia of the Soviet Union. <laughs> no, constitute a nation. And therefore have a right to self-determination, which includes the right to succeed. All the, the white communists who went down south, like, we don't believe that. <laughs> that's not our politics. I always, like we, you know, they just rejected it. They're, and so if anyone says they're slaves to the Comintern, that's just not true. The <laughs> comintern is telling you what to do. And you're like, no, we don't believe it. They kept saying in the Daily Worker, in the press, that we can organize white workers. Black workers are backwards, but I think we might be able to get them too. But our focus is on the advanced section of the white working class. And especially the white industrial working class. They didn't think you could organize farmers. And, you know, they kept saying over and over again, sharecroppers, farmers, well, we know industrial workers are the vanguard. And why do we know this? Because we read our marks.
0: And these other people are feudal relics. <laughs>
1: right, exactly. It's, it's, it's in the book. So they, they're going by the book and they get down there and then they hold a meeting and who shows up? Basically nothing but black workers. So And a few white workers, but black workers show up. And they're like, okay, well, it's good that you're here. Let's try <laughs> to organize some more white workers and then have another meeting. It gets bigger and bigger, all these black workers. Then they're like, okay, well, what do we do? Now, in fairness, these same radicals, both the supporters and those on the ground, were also deeply anti-racist. I mean, that's just a fact. They, it, it, you know, there were some racist things that were said, And a lot of those folks ended up being expelled from the party. But for the most part, they were anti-racist, but they still believed that white workers were the vanguard. Um, When they made an effort in 1931 to form some kind of farmer's union, thinking we could reach out to the rural areas, they went to Coleman County first. They went to try to organize white workers. And it didn't work. And it didn't work because they had already been populated by Black working people. Even the most well-meaning working-class white people, farmers or industrial workers, said, I can't possibly join an organization that's mostly with Black people, for Black people, populated by Black people. Because if I do, even if I believe in this, I'm going to be ostracized. You know? And, And that's how it was. So they end up having to turn to the people who came there first, who showed up and kept showing up over and over again. These are folks who come from gospel quartet circuits, from churches, from the steel plants, the iron ore, the iron ore mines. They're the people who come from, from the, the lowest orders of the working class, but people also have aspirations to be like Negro leaders. You know, people like Jose Hudson and Al Murphy and Eb Cox and Matt Cote. They're people who, who were just, they were more than just workers. They were people who cared about uh, the plight of their people. And they felt like the Communist Party was, was the answer. So they show up and then the party has to regroup. Now here's the, the big irony, is that spatial segregation meant that the white leadership, the initial white leadership of the party could you know could easily meet with white workers but it was hard to meet with black workers because they would be suspect and that meant that they really couldn't control the party they <laughs> so it meant homegrown black leadership that made decisions i mean that's not to say that they didn't meet in interracial spaces they did and they did have debates and it was very dangerous and all that but it meant you had homegrown black working class Organic intellectuals and organizers who basically charted the path for the party on the ground. Um, And only a handful of really courageous and incredible white radicals like Clyde Johnson and Mary Leonard and Alice Burke and Donald Burke. I mean, these are the people who basically risked their lives to organize with black workers or try to bring in white workers. So you have this kind of interesting thing. We have a mass uh, black base, a handful of white workers who are uh, Alabamians, and then a handful who are from other places around the country, uh, many of whom are are, are Jewish radicals who've changed their names, or people from Minnesota, from New York, college educated, who go there and stick around and, and sort of build a party. Uh, and because of that the party took on the characteristics of a kind of black liberation movement with a class analysis it's like uh, i'm sure your listeners probably are familiar with the african blood brotherhood which is an organization formed in 1919 right after the red summer that was meant to be an underground left-wing black nationalist organization armed self-defense, the right to self-determination, anti-lynching, the right to vote. Imagine that organization in Alabama, but larger, you know. And that's sort of what the early uh, formation of the Communist Party looked like, except that they had um, white allies
0: close by. These white communists from the North came there to fight the class struggle, but you write that it, quote, it turned into a, quote, race organization. Right. And a working-class alternative to the NAACP.
1: Exactly, exactly. And and definitely a working-class alternative, both in composition, but also in outlook. Because, you know, I do say it became a race organization, but it became a race organization committed to class struggle. This has been my mantra since I learned it from my teacher, Cedric Robinson, many, many years ago. But, you know, the idea... That somehow an organization fighting for, I don't want to say, it's not just rights, but fighting for power, fighting for justice, and focusing on the conditions of Black people doesn't mean that they're not also fighting for everyone else. I mean, Reconstruction was a fight for everybody. It was a fight for free universal public education, for decent wages, for protections from violence, all that stuff, uh, for land. Um, and the Communist Party did that too. So the so the African Americans who became the leaders of the party, Estelle Milner, Helen Longs, you know, Eula Gray, Jose Hudson. These folks they saw themselves fighting for the race and for the class, and they would say, I mean, in interviews, not just with me, but in interviews or conversations or letters and things that they would write in those days, they said, "We." wish the white people will go with us. We wish the white working class would join us. They are begging the white working class to join They're not trying to be exclusive because they know if they can get the white working class as a whole, they can win. And they can't win without them. I mean, that, that was just a, a basic common sense without having to read any Lenin or Marx. They already knew that. And so the party was the first organization that they confronted That said exactly what they thought, you know, and and gave them a a plan. Compared with the NAACP, one of the shocking numbers I found was that, you know, the party was way bigger than NAACP in Birmingham. There was a a point where, I think in 1931, I could be wrong about this, but roughly 31, 32, around that time, the NAACP had like maybe six dues paying (laughs) members, and the party had, at least 300-plus dues-paying members, but also in terms of the International Labor Defense, which is the equivalent of the NAACP, that is the, the Communist Party's auxiliary devoted to uh, the criminal justice system and to fighting what they call class war prisoners, they had like 600, 700 members. I mean, they, they had a lot more, and they were a much more robust organization. And the leaders of the NAACP in Birmingham were so afraid about that that they're riding back and forth to Walter White saying, look, you know, we're being overshadowed. We need to do something. And And that's when the Scottsboro case comes up as, as a source of a fight, right, between the organizations.
0: Yeah, I want to get into Scottsboro in a minute, but first, just pausing on the Black elite. It's a big part of your book, but from Birmingham businessmen and ministers to the NAACP and the Tuskegee Institute, they weren't only like uninterested in the struggles of poor and working class Black people, but really kind of shockingly actively opposed them. You write, quote, The party's ideological assault on Southern society affected the Black elite. Because Black professionals and businessmen depended on friendly relations with White elites, maintaining the color line was as much a concern for the Black petite bourgeoisie as it was for the entire White community. Indeed, Black middle-class anti-communist rhetoric was sometimes indistinguishable from the utterances of White Southern liberals and mild racists the Birmingham branch of the NAACP assailed the communists for their refusal to recognize the color line. Why was Alabama's elite, black elite, so reactionary?
1: Um, I think that could be replicated in every state of the United States. <laughs> and I know I got, I got in so much trouble for that line, I have to say, because th- this, it, breaks, it, it basically challenges this idea That what Jim Crow did was create a deep racial solidarity and therefore the recognition that we are an oppressed race without acknowledging that what Jim Crow also did was build up and make dependent the power of a Black elite. So it's not to say that there were not black elites, black landowners, black entrepreneurs, black doctors and professionals before that moment. But there was a kind of dependency.
0: Because their elite status sort of depended on this brokerage role. Yes. That they were playing through Jim Crow.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, just being able to get the right to vote in the Jim Crow South period, not just Alabama, usually required a sponsor if you were black. So you had to have a sponsor, a white sponsor would vouch for you, and then they'll let you register. Uh, That meant that you owed them, you know? So it wasn't like a free vote. But more importantly, they depended on a captured working class, both as consumer base, as community to be controlled in some respects. But to be fair, they also were afraid of losing the little status that they had. So when Tennessee Coal and Iron Company, the way they controlled ministers— was a lot of times they owned the land the churches were on, or they would give donations to the church, or or they would be on the pay literally on the payroll of Tennessee Coal and Iron Company, which is just replica it just replicates the system of slavery where you have African American ministers not ordained but who were given special treats or payments from slave masters to preach obedience and you know, or preach and to, to preach um, that the slave master is the father and this is the law of the land and that to resist is to sin. So in many ways, you know, to be fair, some of the Black elite were caught up in this situation and eventually, as we'll see uh, in the post-war period, would try to liberate themselves you know, from that. But you, know, you have the early examples of the anti-communism of the NAACP, and the various businessmen's leagues and that sort of thing. You also see later with the Right to Vote Club, when the Right to Vote Club was formed uh, in Birmingham and Black and white workers were pushing through the CIO uh, voter registration, there was a Black organization that emerged of elites that said, you know, we don't, this is not acceptable. We, we need to actually push for property requirements. We need to push to disfranchise these Black people. Uh, because it wasn't in their interest, you know. So, the the complicity of the black elite was always a problem. But more importantly, this the, some of my favorite episodes in the book are those where black elites are challenged directly. This really almost like circus like story that Jose Hudson tells in his memoir about confronting black minister who's sort of like a stool pigeon, right?
0: And Hudson was a. Pretty religious guy and one of many black cadre who were in on the gospel.
1: Yes, qu- queen, quartets, right? Oh, oh, quartet circuit, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and he, he he was very he was devout, but they knew a traitor when they saw it. So members of the church confronted this this preacher for, I mean, because it's you know it's worse than just like you said, it's worse than being indifferent. They play a kind of notorious role handing over people to the police, informing on uh, welfare recipients who are, you know, who who may have too much flour too much oil or getting aid from someplace else. The most notorious example, of course, is Tuskegee Institute.
0: That story is unreal.
1: Yes, it is unreal. So without going through all the details... There was a second shootout. There was a, there was a first shoot, there was a shootout in Camp Hill, Alabama in 1931 between members of the Sharecroppers Union and the police. And the second one in 1932 that involved a number of people, but two people were died as a result. Well, three, well, more than two, but two died in Tuskegee. Uh, and that is um, Cliff James and Milo Bentley. And they were members of the Sharecroppers Union. James had been shot in the back and was bleeding, and he walked 17 miles to get to, to Tuskegee, because of course there's no hospital for Negroes anywhere near there in town, uh, Alabama. And Tuskegee has a hospital. Tuskegee is allegedly a safe place. And he gets there, and same with Milo Bentley, but James is the main figure. And they dress his wounds and immediately call the police, the Macon County Sheriff, who show up. They arrest him, they arrest Milo Bentley, they put him in um strip him naked basically put him in a in uh in a jail cell give him no medical treatment at all uh and they both die of he dies of infections from his wounds um in a jail cell so the amazing thing was that thanks to the communist party press thanks to the stories that circulate through the southern worker in The Daily Worker that people read all over the country, all these Black people were writing letters to Robert um, Russell Moten, who was the president of Tuskegee, saying, you are such a traitor. You know, how could you as a Negro turn those boys in to their death? Like, what's wrong with you? And got all this like, kind of like hate mail from African Americans around the country. And it just shows you you know, that they, they didn't have to turn them over. They could have hid them. They could have let them flee. Um, but that's not what happened. You know, and so that proved to a lot of Black working people like who their friends were. I mean, if you thought Tuskegee was your friend, now you found out that the ILD is your real friend. The Communist Party is your real friend. The working class struggle is your real friend. And that, that also generated some, some support.
0: As you touched on a few minutes back, the CP's reputation among black people everywhere, but in Alabama in particular, skyrocketed after the communist-aligned organization the International Labor Defense moved to defend the Scottsboro Boys, who were nine young black men accused of raping two white women in 1931. What was the ILD and how did its involvement in this case make it so explosively, globally even, high-profile And in places like Alabama, such a threat, again, to the status of the black elite.
1: The IOD actually was formed in 1925. And, you know, it was founded to defend what they called class war prisoners. It wasn't founded specifically for African Americans. But, you know, you had um, the most famous case that that many people know about is Sacco Vanzetti which is the two Italian anarchists who were accused of um, armed robbery and murder in South Braintree, Massachusetts. Uh, It's 1920. There was like almost no evidence or very lack of evidence. And they were executed in 1927. And that kind of put them on the map. But then they also defended um, the trade union leader, Tom Mooney and Warren Billings. They were framed for the 1916 bombing in San Francisco. And so... You're continuing and they're looking at class war prisoners as basically working class activists, organizers, leftists who are being railroaded. Some are being deported. But Scottsboro in some ways led to a shift because when they defended, and I should name the names of the defenders because we always say Scottsboro nine, but we don't say their names. When they defended Charlie Weems and Ozzie Powell and Clarence Norris and Olin Montgomery, Willie Roberson, Harry, uh, Haywood Patterson, and Andy Wright, and Rohr Wright, and Eugene Williams. These cats were not trade unionists. They were not communists. They were not anarchists. They were not organizers of anything. They were just some young people uh, riding the rails trying to find work. And a lot of them were from Tennessee. Uh, And they were passing through Paint Rock, Alabama, March 31st, I think it was, um, 1931. Around that time, so they were jobless kids. The only reason they were arrested was because they got into a fight with some white boys who were on the train. The police stopped to try to figure out what about figure out what happened. To this fight, when the word got out that some black kids were fighting white kids, they discovered two white women riding the railroad, uh, and that's not unusual. And so that alone compelled. And this is very important. The white women felt compelled. In order to not be arrested for vagrancy or for prostitution, to say that they've been raped by these black kids. That was what got them off, but it was also a lie. The ILD did something that the NAACP would not have done. And the NACP was sort of him and Hong, like, you know, we we don't know the character of these kids. Maybe they really did it. And eventually they get involved in the case. But the ILD's thing was that they're class war prisoners because they're oppressed by class and race. And the only reason that they would not have been lynched or sent to the electric chair is because of our intervention. And they decided to, tr- to basically bring this trial to the court of public opinion by spreading the word all over the world that an injustice had occurred, that they're victims of systemic racism and class oppression. And as a result, they got people in the streets 13,000 people in Cleveland, um, 20,000 people in New York City, protests in Tokyo, uh, in, in South Africa, in, in Paris, Moscow, all demanding freedom for the Scottsboro Boys. And it just changed the narrative. It, and it allowed them to go on, on on tour. The mothers of the Scottsboro trial became uh, heroes. The communist press countered all the kind of racist and gendered stereotypes that painted black men as, as violent and dangerous rapists and all the white women as pure and virtuous and basically trans like flipped that narrative on its head and then, through the Scottsboro Mothers, showed black women as grieving mothers who might lose their children to the electric chair. I mean... It was so dramatic and so powerful for reversing a lot of the racism. And that brought a lot of Black people and other people into the party, more so than fighting evictions or relief or the kind of economic arguments. It was that struggle for justice that did it. And then one last thing is that Ruby Bates was the one, uh, one of the two women who decided to recant her testimony and she was embraced by the party. She went on speaking tours. Wow. Uh, and she was actually on tours with Angelo Herndon and others. And, you know, she just simply refused. And, and what it did was it emboldened a lot of the um, uh, working-class white women and other white women who were forced into testifying that they'd been raped. And it was actually a case—this uh, is in the book, too— in 1934, where the ILD defended a man named Ed Johnson in Selma, who was charged with raping a white woman. And the, the woman who filed the charge in the first place said, you know, she told the police, like, I'm not, I'm not going to be forced by the police to invent a story. It's not true. And she said, quote, um, she would not be like Victoria Price, but like Ruby Bates. She would tell the truth.
0: It's powerful. What's fascinating and so important there is that the CP and the ILD understanding the everyday persecution of poor and working class black people by the police, by the courts, by the entire criminal justice system, understanding these young men as class war prisoners because of that structural dynamic, even though those nine were not being repressed in direct response to labor or political work, but just going about their daily lives as poor black people. That's a really rather advanced analysis given where we find ourselves today with the carceral state. Exactly, exactly.
1: And I just want to give credit also to the communists on the ground who helped develop the analysis because one of the things I talk about, is it's, um, I think it's chapter four of my book about the ILD, is that before Scottsboro, local communists were actually doing this work on the ground, so this case of Tom Robertson in 1930, who was, um, Tom Robertson was lynched and it was over like a, you know, a, a dispute with a, 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 employer or a farmer. Um, I can't remember the details, but Tom Robertson was, was lynched and, uh, And they began to frame this as, again, a class oppression, kind of race and class oppression. And they saw the ILD's role as to take up all these local cases of criminal injustice, of people being arrested or prosecuted or lynched. And before that, in 1930, the the, uh, American Negro Labor Congress, which was one of the um, uh, Communist Party auxiliaries, held a conference in Chattanooga, surprised I can remember all this, held a conference in Chattanooga in 1930 that uh, was an anti-lynching conference. And so what ends up happening is that lynching in the communist worldview becomes a class weapon. You know, it's a weapon of racism. They don't deny that part, but it's also a class weapon. And once you see lynching as a class weapon, then you can see poor Black people being corralled by the police for crimes they didn't commit as class war prisoners. So you could see the steps getting to that point, that it was already laid out. One of the tragedies, and I'm critical of the party for this, is that you have another case that no one ever talks about where a 12-year-old girl, black girl named Mertis Dixon, uh, was raped by a white man. And ILD, the local ILD, took up that case. Jose Hudson himself. They're like, we need to defend, we need this guy to, to go to jail. We need to defend her, But for some reason, the Communist Party press at the national scale did not cover it. They didn't get resources, support for it, because they didn't see it as, they didn't see 12-year-old Mertz Dixon as a class war prisoner. The only publication to carry an article about it was the Garveyite Negro World.
0: Important piece of context here is that as soon as communists started doing their early organizing just even among unemployed people in Birmingham, they were targeted immediately for advocating social equality. You write, quote, social equality was such a potent, all-encompassing anti-communist slogan that the party's demand for black self-determination with its separatist implication was surprisingly ignored in the Southern press or in the various forms of Southern anti-communist propaganda. The cry of social equality, with all its multiple, specifically sexual meanings and apparent ambiguities, was particularly effective because it symbolized the ultimate threat to white supremacy, class power, civilization, and Southern ruler's most precious property, white women. (laughs) This concept might be unfamiliar to to some listeners today. It's not a term in, in general circulation. Anymore, What did social equality mean in Jim Crow, Alabama, and the Jim Crow South? And why did reactionaries emphasize that above all else in their anti-communism?
1: No, that's an excellent question. And the concept of social equality as a race leveler, it goes back to the antebellum period. You know, in fact, uh, we can see it not just in the South, but across the country, where during Reconstruction, the biggest... Slogan against the Republican Party, against Lincoln, for that matter, was that abolitionists want social equality, Republicans want social equality. Social equality equals miscegenation. So, if you say you want equal wages, that's one thing. If you say you want equal access to land, it's another thing. But social equality means that the the domain of the social. Is the intimate domain? It means uh, it's de- definitely this domain of sex, you know. So social equality is kind of a euphemism for uh, you're going to marry a white woman, for example. It also meant the domain of housing. You know, one of the things that's important to realize is that the violence against school integration. And home integration, as neighborhood integration, was much more intense because it was considered social equality as opposed to, like I said, economic equality or equality of wages. You can be uh, a a kind of left-leaning person on economic matters, but not social matters. And that's where social equality became the wedge to try to drive white workers out of even being interested in the Communist Party. And it and it works.
0: And it was the weakness in prior forms of organizing in the South around the populist movement where there was, shockingly, in retrospect, given how the time period, interracial organizing for, or for economic and political mm-hmm. equality, but social equality was not exactly on the table.
1: Right. In fact, social equality was a way to undermine all the political and economic struggles. And though this is not in not about Alabama, but one of the great stories where this becomes clear is Danville, uh, Virginia in the 1886, when you had a state, the readjusters, which was kind of a biracial party that was really influenced by Republicans. You had Republicans and readjusters in the state. You had Black people elected to local office. Uh, You had a kind of biracial coalition happening. And all they had to do was elect a Black man to the school board in Danville. And all the people who are like, oh, well, this society is pretty good. You know, wages are not bad. You know, we got, you know, we got political uh, participation. All they had to do was say, you know what? This Black man being elected to school board is an example of social equality. Why? because he's going to have access to all the white teachers. Because, of course, as uh, a member of the school board or superintendent of schools, whatever, he's going to basically rape all the white women. And that's where the white people go crazy. Claude McKay gave a presentation at the Fourth uh, Communist International, Fourth Congress of Communist International, where he talks about, like, the Negro question. And in his speech, he said the biggest Achilles heel for white working people is sex, the fascination with Black sexuality, and that this is the thing that always drives them. And so even the way that the word communism, you know, was was pronounced, pronounced is a way to emphasize that what they want to do, and this is a quote, is nationalize your daughters, You know, they want to nationalize white women. And so part of the story of chivalry is, Jacqueline Dowd Hall writes beautifully about this. Chivalry was a kind of bludgeon in the name of protecting white women to basically keep white women in their place and to keep the um, black people in their place as well. So chivalry was the fostering bargain that white women had to make to basically protect their wombs and, and limit their own sexual freedom, be placed on a pedestal and protected uh, from Black rapists. So there can never be any conception of concept- consensual relationships between white women and Black men, unless you're dirt poor. That's different. Because poor white women didn't have chivalry. <laughs> and we know this because there's a whole history of poor white women marrying, legally marrying Black men. You know stories about this. So in some ways, that question of chivalry and the protection of white women become the foundation for some of the most important cases that the ILD gets involved in. Uh, Scottsboro's one. The other one was the Willie Peterson case, uh, where Willie Peterson was an Alabama black man, uh, falsely accused of shooting two white people, white women, actually, uh, shooting three white people, but killing two, and a white man, two white women, and accused of rape. Uh, he didn't fit the description at all, but it didn't matter. What mattered was that he fit the description of the black brute, the black rapist. Uh, and that was uh, a case where the, when the ILD took it up, they had to proceed very cautiously and carefully because they couldn't give the impression of defending black rapists, you know, despite the fact there's no evidence of it. um so they so they basically took a very bold position and kind of shot down the entire question of what chivalry and the defense of white women really means. And they didn't say anything that was new. They said what Ida B. Wells has been saying since the nineteenth century and what others have been saying. But this was this is one of the landmines that the party had to navigate. This question of, of race and sex.
0: And did the NAACP ultimately fight the ILD for control of that legal defense team?
1: They did. They fought them all the way, um, all the way because up. Because they
0: they didn't want to have another Scottsboro Boys situation.
1: Yes, in the in the Willie Peterson case, you know, well, there's a couple of cases. T- Tom Robertson's another one where they got involved and. But Willie Peterson, well, they wanted to get involved, and they didn't. But Willie Peterson is a case where they also did not want another Scottsboro situation because for them, it was a publicity, you know, it was publicity that they worried about. And they were also deeply anti-communist as well.
0: And Walter White, sitting there in D.C. or wherever he was, was really actively worried about the Alabama Communist Party.
1: Yes, very much. And and by the way, those letters that he writes back and forth uh, to the local NACP those letters could be replicated all across the country because he was worried about communists everywhere. Um, And part of his his deep hatred of Du Bois was Du Bois' left politics. You know, although Walter White himself is complicated. He's a complicated figure. But what I can say is that eventually, the NAACP, I think it was 1936, decided they had no choice but to work with the ILD jointly. Uh, to defend um, the remaining defendants uh, and to try to win the case. So they eventually did. And the end also took on a different form. By World War II, it became much more of a mass organization.
0: Let's move on to the CP's organizing campaigns in Alabama, starting with their work among unemployed people. Why did the CP start with unemployed people? Who were they organizing? What were they organizing people to fight for, and how did they use those fights to begin to build out cadre and mass organization?
1: Well, the party's unemployed campaign, which took the form of the formation of unemployed councils, was a national campaign. So they were organizing unemployed everywhere. And of course, this is deep into the first wave of the Great Depression, 19. So you got the stock stock market crash of 29. 30, 31, 32 is just high unemployment. And if you can't get into a plant, then those are the folks who are most likely to be organized. They were demanding relief, immediate cash relief. They weren't necessarily pushing for a kind of labor regime. They wanted this, if the federal government could not produce jobs, they wanted cash relief. And they organized a march on Washington. So they were mobilizing for a massive march uh, to Washington, D.C., of unemployed people. And so in Alabama, it's no different from any other uh, state, they were the first to be organized, the the first available. And given the fact that in that period from 1930 to 32, relief—this is all before the New Deal, by the way, this is important— because you, you don't have New Deal relief agencies there. You don't have work relief. What you do have is city relief, community chest, private relief, some state relief, but no real f- significant robust federal.
0: Red Cross is one of the big operations.
1: Exactly. Red Cross is one of the big operations, and, and they, um, they're not uh, unbiased because <laughs> it depends on how you look how much relief you're going you're gonna to get. And Red Cross also had its own kind of work belief. I mean, you, you know, with the Red Cross, we think of them as just showing up and saving people. They made you work, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you had Red Cross workers. Uh, you know, it's like hard work. So in that sense, they were the first. And organizing unemployed wasn't easy because of the mobility, you know? The Scottsboro nine are examples of the kind of mobility where people go from state to state looking for work. If you want a cadre to stay in one place, then the unemployed are not always your best bet. But initially, they made a strong kind of foundation. And some of the early demonstrations led by people like Joe Burton, a 19-year-old YCL leader, African-American they were marching to City Hall in Birmingham, demanding relief, uh, and bringing with them uh, white workers as well, white unemployed uh, people, and men and women and children would show up. And at one point, I think it was 1932, Birmingham had the largest demonstration, communist-led demonstration in its history. Like five to 7,000 people showed up, interracial, demanding uh, relief.
0: It's a good model for organizers to not only identify what your ideal struggle is, but the struggle of that makes most intense sense to where people are at at any given moment.
1: That is that is so true. Um, especially even if you believe mm-hmm. that industrial workers at a plant represent the greatest power. If you have jobless people in the streets, or if you have, and, and again, this is about, like, what does it mean to, to not have a job or not have income? People have to fight the battles where they are. And for a lot of jobless people, it meant um, not being evicted from your house or, or your rental property. It meant, you know, having your electricity cut off or your water cut off and trying to figure out how to get it back. So what the party basically did was not simply organize rallies of jobless people, But to attend to their needs, not unlike the dramatic cases of people in Harlem and Chicago being evicted and their furniture is on the street and the cops are there overseeing the eviction and the communists show up and dramatically put the furniture back in and then they put the furniture (laughs) back out. Those those kind of dramatic scenes, that's what we see. But in Alabama, where being a communist was a dangerous thing, um, they would do these amazing, amazing actions. So if someone's electricity was, would, cut off, would be cut off, they'd show up with these kind of heavy gauge copper, copper wires and as jumper cables, basically, and they would attach the public electricity through you know an electricity line to the home and, and get their electricity working again. They would figure out how, how to turn on water mains that had been turned off when working people were renting and they were about to be evicted the uh Communist Party would send a delegation to the owner of the of the house, and it could be a black owner it doesn 't have to be a white owner, and say, "Look, you have a choice. you can evict this family, and I guarantee you by tomorrow you will not have a house because people do need firewood, <laughs> and your house looks really good it's, it''s It's a wooden house it has a lot of really good burning materials, or you could keep them there, pay them a dollar a week or whatever." to take care of your property, and you'll have a house, you know, and the choice is yours. You do what you want to do. And that kept people in. That's very different from the drama of fighting the police in the streets and getting recruits that way.
0: They also made sorts of similar things clear to Black people in the neighborhood who they thought were snitching to the relief administrators about people's hidden assets.
1: Exactly, exactly. So in those days, you know, they would always police people who received any kind of Public welfare. If you had too much flour, too much whatever, or if you had extra cash, or if you had nice furniture, they would uh, cut you off. And they would also pay what they call stool pigeons. You know them today as snitches, who would inform on their neighbors, and they would get a little bit of extra relief: cheese, flour, meat, oil, um, whatever. And that's how the system works. What the party did was. They would write out these kind of like penny postcards. And if they know someone's snitching, they would write like, like dozens of them, like the workers are watching you. We know what you did at Ms. Collins' house. You know, the workers are watching you. You better watch out. You better be careful. Same thing with social workers. Some of the black social workers, their job was to basically deny people relief. And they would send, you know, penny postcards, anonymous, The workers are watching you. And if you, because you imagine like you go
0: home and you got like,
1: you know, 25 or 30 postcards, the workers are watching you. You'd be kind of scared to death. I get the message. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And that's how they did it. And and then other things, it's like, you know, to me, all these are examples, and I didn't have the language at the time, of mutual aid. This is what mutual aid looks like. When uh, firemen on, and I say firemen meaning the people who, are stoking the fires of trains, which is a task. And they're like on trains passing through Birmingham. And these cats would like kick big chunks of coke, you know, which is kind of like, you know, hard coal off the train uh, for people to pick it up to use for um, fuel, like accidentally knock a whole bunch of coal off and people just pick it up. That's mutual aid, you know, when You know, turning people's water mains on. That's mutual aid. It's like, we're going to help each other out to make sure we survive. And for them, it wasn't just a tactic of gaining recruits. It was what communists are supposed to do. Because these communists were driven by the Bible. They were driven by being, you know, good neighbors, caring for other people in the midst of depression. You know, and also crossing the color line if that was required to do so, you
0: know. You mentioned the Bible, and Southern Black Christianity was just enormously influential among Black Alabama communists. And maybe influential isn't even the right word. It's more just the culture within which people lived and thought and worked and and struggled. And as we mentioned earlier, important Black communist leaders like Hosea Hudson were active on the local gospel quartet circuit. But As you also mentioned earlier, black ministers were part of a black elite that was just staunchly anti-communist. And you had ministers preaching against communism, even as black communist parishioners sat in the pews. But meanwhile, of course, the Communist Party, in official terms, did not look very kindly on religion of any sort at all. How did that all shake out on the ground? Uh,
1: Again, the spatial segregation allowed for self-development. Of a black communist party in alliance with whites. And so they couldn't, they just couldn't tell people what to do. They couldn't like direct them. And so they developed on their own. And of course, once they learned the power of these kind of biblical injunctions, they didn't disagree. And, you know, this is a this is for another study, but the truth is Alabama may not be as exceptional as other parts of the U.S. in terms of the presence of devoutly religious uh, members of the party. I think it was everywhere. No one was disciplined for starting meetings with a prayer. Uh, It was very much part of the culture, part of the African-American culture, and my guess, part of white working class culture as well. And there were ministers who were close to the party, or at least close to labor, You know, like, for example, there were some really critical uh, figures among the kind of radical clergy in Alabama who opened their churches up for the International Mine, and Smelter Workers Union, for example, for their meetings. And later, after the war, uh, some uh, more progressive ministers played a role in supporting the Southern Negro Youth Congress, for example. So my guess is that the majority of Black clergy in Alabama probably was either indifferent, afraid, or sympathetic to what the party was doing. And that the, those who exercise more power often were those who were empowered by corporate interests, empowered by TCI and, and um, local police. But they were, they were not the majority.
0: I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. One new piece that might be of interest to DIG listeners is Toby Haslett's Magic Actions, which looks back at last summer's uprisings and makes a case for the urgency and efficacy of riots. Quote, We need not fear that word. In fact, it's vital to insist over the drone of an amnesiac discourse that last year's spate of protest was propelled, made fiercely possible, by massive clashes in the street— not tainted or delegitimized by them, nor assembled from thin air. Haslett continues, Any left that hopes to assemble its flailing forces must find a way to join the two clearest fronts of conflict. On one hand, build class power by wrestling benefits from the state. On the other, slay the beast that eats the dark and poor. Dig listeners can take twenty-five percent off a yearly print subscription to n plus one at n plus one mag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig one word at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to 16 years of paywalled essays, reviews, and fiction, all for less than $3 a month. That is N P L U S. O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. Let's turn to the CP's first big push into the countryside, which was to organize sharecroppers across the Black Belt. You write, quote, It is tempting to characterize the Black Belt as a timeless, static, semi-feudal remnant of the post-Reconstruction era. But such an idyllic picture ignores the history of rural opposition and does not take into account significant structural changes that have occurred since the 1890s. Black and white populists waged a losing battle against the expansion of tenancy. And in the wake of defeat, many landless farmers resisted debt peonage with their feet. What did the black belt economy, society, and politics, and black people's place within it look like when communists arrived amid this period of the the early Great Depression and the early Great Migration.
1: So the Depression hit uh, the rural South almost immediately after World War I. I mean, you know, people think of the stock market crash as, as the change, but the cotton market collapsed. And it collapsed for a variety of different reasons, some of it having to do with the global economy. And the fact that after the war, the southern cotton economy is competing with, with the global market. And so that is an impa- has a huge impact. The boll weevil infestation has a huge impact. The migration we know about the great migration of, you know during and right after World War I, but I'm talking about people who were left behind, or the people who left with the migration and came back. And the story of Ralph Gray, who was really one of the first lead organizers of the sharecroppers union, is one of those figures who, you know, got hit with a boll weevil. Things were really rough. He left Alabama. He sharecropped in Oklahoma. He ended up, I think, in New Mexico, uh, someplace in the West. And he ends up coming back and sharecropping again and starts to accumulate a little money to buy land. So mobility was, was sort of par for the course, this kind of constant movement. The other factor is that there was nothing you know, going on in terms of, of improved conditions. So every year was like starvation. The way sharecropping worked was that you're always in debt. You, you, know, you grow on your acreage, you chop the cotton, you you cultivate it you harvest it you take it to the gin and they you know gin it and then bail it and you're paying all these expenses and in the end you then make settle accounts with the landlord and you're always in debt so you end up with nothing and have to beg for furnishings with, or food and this is a key demand that led to the growth of the sharecroppers union In the first place, that is during the winter months, you don't have anything and you have to borrow to get it or beg to get it. And so it was a demand saying, you know what, we need a fairer system and we want furnishings over this course. And then they were asking for higher wages to pick cotton. I mean, the fact of the matter is that they're paying 30 cents per 100 pounds to pick cotton. Most most people, even strong people, can't pick more than 200 pounds in a day which means you're basically getting 60 cents a day. And that meant that even uh, people often had to travel other places to pick cotton, you know, when the the crop was was coming in a little bit later just to make ends meet. So that was the context for the sharecroppers union uh, organizing initially. They really wanted to get white workers and tenant farmers, but at first they could not. They could not. Um, it was very, very hard for them. And um, one other thing I should mention is that the sharecroppers pretty much organized themselves with the help specifically of a Black woman named Estelle Milner. A teacher, right? A school teacher, exactly. Estelle Milner, I know a lot more about her now than I even wrote in the book, but um, she you know, was from Tallapoosa County. She was from, um, I think, the town of, of Rome.
0: And Tallapoosa County is the Black Belt County where the SEU first took off.
1: Exactly. Though so technically, if you want to be really, really technical, Tallapoosa County is not in the Black Belt. It's a Piedmont just, County. Just,
0: just north of the Black that Belt. Ha-
1: just north. Just like the very bottom of it is sort of part of that. But Tallapoosa is really unusual because it's a kind of a Piedmont County that has some hills and some plains, and but it has a cotton economy. And so because she was from there, she knew people, she had family there. And she was the one who started distributing the Southern worker and pamphlets and getting people organized. And when they began to see that, sharecroppers began to write the Southern worker letters, thanks to her. And they began organizing really around, again, extending furnishings, food, raising wages for cotton, picking, uh, and that sort of thing. And of course, it took a long time. When they ended up with the shootout with police, Estelle Milner was one of those who was beaten badly and had a broken vertebrae. And women were really central. I mean, Ralph Gray was killed uh, in this kind of police raid. And his body's Mm. riddled with bullets thrown. His corpse was thrown on the the county courthouse steps in Dadeville County. Very violent, violent repression. But even after that, it was the daughter of Ralph Gray, Eula Gray, who's 19 years old, young Black woman who really kept the the, the union together. Um, One thing, though, that
0: changes is the New Deal. And the Agricultural Adjustment Act.
1: Yes. The Agricultural Adjustment Act basically was one of many attempts to save capitalism. And so rather than figure out a way to take the harvest or maybe redirect the harvest to
0: food, you know, um, and grow food. And not commodity, And not commodity export crops. Right, right, exactly. What they did was
1: they paid farmers to destroy crops, to let the land lie fallow, and to kill pigs, and to do whatever they could to keep the price of commodities up at the expense of people starving. Long story short, landlords got these checks, that was supposed to be double endorsed, and they're supposed to like cash a check and then distribute the proceeds. that's re- related to how much acreage to the share. Seems like a
0: foolproof system they, in the Jim Crow South. What could go wrong? Oh,
1: of course, of course. What could go wrong? And by the way, it's Southern Democrats that set up the system of who controls the money. And this is this is where I, you know, I get in trouble for saying this. I'm not the first one to say it, but. You know, this is why you can look at the New Deal in the South, but also across the country, but especially in the South, and you can make comparisons with the corporate state of Italy under fascism. Um, or Germany. Why? Because the South was a dictatorship. It wasn't a democracy. You have, you've disfranchised a vast majority of the people, and then you have Southern Democrats who don't represent those people at all, who then dictate uh, New Deal policy because Roosevelt needs Democrats, to, you know, needs the Democrat support. And the deal is, Roosevelt says, look, I'm not going to push for anti-lynching law as long as you support my new deal. And in fact, I'll let you all control it. Do it any way you want. Wage differentials, you want to pay Black people less? Fine. You want to pay Southerners less? We don't care. You know, as long as you support the new deal. And that's how the dictatorship uh, works. So with the Agriculture Adjustment Act, Part of what happened was that the landlords kept the money and used the money to buy mechanical cotton pickers.
0: All while evicting the tenants.
1: Exactly. So you transformed this kind of potential small landholding group into um, landless wage laborers now. I mean, the potential for land is now uh, just a kind of pipe dream. And they end up being evicted, especially... And this happens especially after 1935 because they wage a cotton picker strike that is incredibly successful in terms of raising wages, but then it's followed by evictions.
0: How did they manage to organize in a climate of such brutally violent terrorism? You write that the the sharecroppers union scored its first big victory with the 1934 cotton picker strike. Three years later, that was just three years after its founding, then another victory, the Cotton Chopper Strike of 35. But you write that in the 35 strike, the SCU won in counties where it was strong, but in other counties, they were just brutally and thoroughly repressed. What sort and scale of repression did the sharecroppers union confront, and why were they better able to weather it in some places than others?
1: You know, I wish I had a really good answer for that. Um, But I can say a couple of things. Organization's always a factor. Uh, Armed self-defense is a factor. And in places where people were organized and armed, they were able to defend themselves, you know, or at least the the landlords knew that you can't just send a local sheriff in and and get out alive. Um, And Black women and men were armed. So that was a factor. You know, the other factor, I think, probably has to do with the strength of the landlord's relationship to the economy, to the middleman. And I don't write about this, but there are some plantations where the landlord was quick to agree to a, a wage increase, even without party influence, because part of it was that they didn't want—they they thought that they could actually liquidate the party by uh, through cooperation. So that was a factor. And then also just sheer courage on the part of organizers. And this is a funny story that I love to tell. One of the people I interviewed was this man named Lemon Johnson. And I have a picture of him I took that's in the book. And Lemon Johnson was became a communist, and he was a member of the sharecropper. He was actually the secretary of the Hope Hall local of the sharecroppers union. You know, I was in his shack, was like, when they say tumble down shack, I mean, the roof is caving in, you know, and I'm sitting on his bed and he has one chair and, he, and I asked him, I said, well, you know, well, how did you all win that cotton, you know, the cotton chopper strike? He said, well, let me show you how we did it. And he literally takes out a box of shotgun shells and puts it on the bed and then he takes out a copy of Lennon's What Is To Be Done and puts it next to the shock, shotgun shells and he says, right there, <laughs> theory and practice. <laughs> theory and practice. <laughs> no? And then he proceeds to tell me this amazing apocryphal story about like, he knew, they all knew that if anything were to go wrong, if the planter class and the police were to come down and start massacring black people, he knew that Stalin would send ships across the Atlantic. Would, they would dock in Mobile and send troops in groups of seven, you know, seven men, m- multiple groups coming up from these ships, who then would defend them, who would start to kill landlords. So internationalism, you know, we think of as a kind of a dream. For them, it was so real. It was like they now can fight because they knew they know they have the world's proletariat behind them.
0: Yeah, this all put Black Alabamans' struggles in this dramatic global context, which it's hard to overstate how powerfully radicalizing an experience ideologically that could be. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And it's funny because um, there's all this talk about, you know, like the rebellions in the 1960s. said, You know, there's, there's Cubans behind it. There were Russians behind it, communists behind it. There's always some communists behind it. But the thing is for, for a lot of African Americans in the party or close to it, that works. It's like there are Cubans behind us? They're Russians. Oh, well, Thank God. okay, well, then I'm ready. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> Thank exactly. God the Cubans are here. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm ready to fight now. Like I know I'm not alone. And it it's just it just works. And that's where I I kind of, you know, set upon this idea which became clear in my interviews, of kind of Reconstruction redux, you know, that, that the Communist Party represented the, the new Yankees, because part of the image or the memory of Reconstruction wasn't just that it was an, an experiment in democracy and, and, and freedom, but it was an experiment in democracy and freedom that was only possible because of the Yankees. Now, we know that's not true, you know, in hindsight, but the the image of having a kind of force of a state behind you was enough to give you the confidence to keep moving forward.
0: That was a popular memory that the CP, probably unbeknownst to the CP, was tapping into.
1: Exactly. They didn't have a clue. Of course, the the white mainstream conservative press tapped into it too, because they're the ones saying... These are just Yankees, these <laughs> communist Yankees, Yankee Reds, all this other stuff. And imagine you got Black people saying, Yankee Reds, here in <laughs> Alabama? Well, I got I to find me one. Where are they? And they start to like ask questions. And, you know, there's something about, even, even when I was visiting, interviewing people in the 1980s for the book, they would tell stories about, like, during the Civil Rights Movement where there was something about, like the white people who came from the outside who didn't talk like neighbors were the ones that they automatically trusted. You know, there's something about like, well, you're like the Yankees. And so the same thing happened in the 1960s, this kind of recognition uh, that you're a friend.
0: Precisely because you're a white person without a Southern accent.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Of course people learn that many of them actually work for the FBI and you know but, but that's another story you know.
0: The the rural rural repression of sharecroppers was probably the most brutal in your book but there's so much brutal repression there's police working with lynch mobs all over the place police torture red squad raids in Birmingham seizing radical literature and arresting people company goon squads meeting out beatings and torture the white legion the KKK what what were the various kind? What was this web of repression that existed in Alabama, and how did they how did it exercise these various actors within this web? Exercise these various forms of terror against Black people and communists across the state. And then the the repression you describe was so brutal and widespread. And you touch on this briefly in your book, but it makes me wonder: Does that level of repression force us to take a second look at? at classic questions like why the U.S. has never had socialism or a strong socialist party.
1: Well, the repression was brutal in part because it did not rely entirely on the state. So you had a very strong repressive state apparatus and police departments and local county sheriffs. But a lot of times you you find these stories where the police depended on mob violence. They were incredibly careful sometimes about not taking responsibility. They would just, you know, let people out of jail or they would, you know, withdraw so that mobs that they work with can do the dirty work. And, you know, people like Joseph Gelders, and I mean, it doesn't matter, almost like your class status.
0: Joseph Gelders being a undercover communist out as a progressive kind of left liberal, Uh, from a prominent Jewish family in in Alabama.
1: Exactly, exactly. A prominent Jewish family, an intellectual, someone who's quite public, in fact, in terms of his work around civil rights and anti-labor repression, you know. So he was kidnapped and beaten and left outside the city limits. and It was just common stuff. The, The big corporations, TCI in particular, had their own private police, and they did their dirty work. But what, to me this shows is the fear, the deep fear of an interracial or Black working-class response. Because the fact of the matter is that the party was winning. They were winning adherents. They were winning small battles. They were, you know, the party was blamed for the strike wave of 1934, despite the fact that a lot of communists didn't play a major role in it, they played roles in very particular places. But they were the ones blamed. And they used every single force at their disposal to crush them because they knew they couldn't, they couldn't win by persuasion. The genie had been taken all sort of out of the bottle, right? And they also had other ways of repressing, that is, all these hearings, the fish committee hearing in 1930. They had a, the Dies Committee hearings. Uh, 38. And all these, yeah, 38. Um, you also had, you know, all these different kind of investigations, the passage of the criminal anarchy ordinance in Bessemer and elsewhere, all this meant to tap down the communist threat. But what's amazing to me, I, like, I don't have, I've never found any evidence of someone being beaten by the police badly and saying, I quit. <laughs> So Saul Davis is one, beaten, skull fractured, comes back to, to work. Estelle Milner, Helen Longs, she's beat. The description of her beating, Helen Longs is a communist black woman. The description of her beating is no different from what Fan Lou Hamer experienced in her description of her beating, uh, you know, 30 years later. And yet she didn't quit. They keep coming back and keep coming back. And in many ways, I find that astounding. And it may help explain why there's no communism in the U.S., although I would actually say that the repression kept them at bay to a certain degree, but it didn't succeed fully. Because if it succeeded, there would be, be no presence. They, they continued throughout World War II. It was, wasn't until the Cold War, where you have a national repressive uh, apparatus with Taft-Hartley and the Red Scare, that a lot of the communists actually went underground and left the South. But they didn't all leave. A lot of them ended up in the civil rights movement. You know? But in the 1930s, the heyday, it's just amazing how all that repression that we see in the early 30s in the rural areas, by the end of, by, by the second half of the 1930s, the popular front, the party's bigger than it had been, you know, to a certain degree. And it continues to grow. Uh, and so I think that's, that's a factor. I think the, the reason we don't really have a robust communist party has to do not with hard power, but soft power. The soft power is more effective in convincing people. So, for example, um, during the Popular Front, that's when the party got involved in organizing the CIO. And the CIO was pretty successful. It wasn't communist. But those communists in the grass, in the kind of uh, rank and file succeeded in doing their work, building an effective organization, and many of them saw no need for being in the party anymore. And so people left more often over that than being beaten. Uh, And it showed that, you know, you can have some kind of extension of the social democratic promise through these other organizations and the party's not necessary. And that was successful. And also the party itself abandoned the underground period of working class organi- organization and embrace the popular front for the purposes of building an alliance with with liberals, many of whom would not even be sympathetic to communism anyway.
0: Yeah. Well, you write that your, quote, suggestion that the popular front led to the party's demise in Alabama is still perhaps the book's most controversial argument. That's from the forward to the most recent forward to the to the book. What what was the popular front and how did it change how the party operated in Alabama and why as you argue was it a significant factor leading to the party's demise
1: The shift to the popular front was an international shift in communist policy uh, and basically you know in a nutshell it was an attempt to resist fascism by creating the, the broadest front possible with labor, with liberals, um, including with socialists. There was a United Front policy that was like anti-socialist, like anti-socialist party. And then they said, you know what? We're just going to take everyone. Uh, and it, was, it came from the from Stalinist. So in Alabama, the par- party kind of underwent a shakeup. They got new leadership who were supposed to represent the new Popular Front strategy. And Rob Hall was sent to Alabama to basically run the party. And the way Popular Front was conceived across the US was to build alliances with liberals, with intellectuals, with artists, in order to kind of come above ground, in order to you know basically say, look, we're all harmless, but most importantly, we're gonna get the broadest support to fight fascism. The problem with Alabama is that you actually had another set of liberals who were deeply anti-communist and segregationist, and that's the issue. You've you've just gone through, you've just like risked all these people's lives for the past six years fighting a deeply anti-racist social justice movement that was class-based, that focused on the working class, that wage war on elites, Black elites and others, to suddenly kind of turn around and say, you know, all these like racist liberals, we're going to try to embrace them and recruit them. It wasn't a winning strategy if the point was to build a working class movement. And that's when Black working people began to drift away from the party because they saw no need. I mean, the fact is, if you're organizing the CIO and the CIO becomes a vehicle to do uh, working-class organizing or the mine, mill, smelter workers or steel workers, all part of the CIO at the time, then you don't need the Communist Party if they're going to form or participate in the Southern Conference of Human Welfare, which becomes later a very radical organization. But at the time, the idea was to kind of build the popular front. Now, that's that's one side of the story. That's not the whole side. but But the numbers and the focus on the black working class start to dwindle. And that's right around the time when black workers are working in uh, works progress administration projects, they're trying to organize them. The party is trying really hard
0: to- Which you call perhaps uh, their most incongruous campaign during the popular front,
1: (laughs) as an aside. Right, right, (laughs) exactly, exactly. You know, it was the most in Congress uh, campaign because they're, they're not focused on workers. Um, and then they also shift again in 1937 to the Democratic front, which is just simply more of a, a liberal orientation. And, you know, they lose a Black base, not all of them. What changes things, though, was when the Southern Negro Youth Congress is formed in 1937, and they move their operations, their headquarters to Birmingham in 1939. And in many ways, the timing is really important because the Southern Negro Youth Congress is kind of a popular front strategy, but it's not. It is a kind of new generation of black radicals.
0: It's almost kind of proto new left in a way. It yeah, appeared to it me is in your book, from your book. The same with the League of what is it? League of Southern Youth.
1: League of League of of, uh, Young League of Young Southerners, Southerners who are the white kind of counterpart, right? Exactly. So, and they're smaller, but they're significant. People like uh, Joe Gelder's daughter, Marge Gelder's, uh, Lauren France. um, It's just a number of people who come together, and they're allied with the Southern Negro Youth Congress. And for them, they're kind of like precursors of the Civil Rights Movement, except that their orientation really is still focused on the working class. The Southern Negro East Congress fought things like, you know, de- you know public accommodations, segregation of public accommodations, transportation. They were trying to, they were working with sharecroppers, doing art projects, and p- kind of cultural projects um, with youth, fighting for the right to vote, expanding democracy. Uh, and then also, you know, they started out, you know, organizing tobacco workers in um, in Virginia in its its early inception. So they were a pretty radical force. So the timing is interesting because their form, they get a hold in Birmingham. Their leaders are these amazingly dynamic folks, many of whom are communists, like James Jackson, Esther Cooper Jackson, and Dorothy Burnham, and... and you know, Ed Strong, Augustus Strong, Louis Burnham, they're couples and they're brave and courageous. So they end up doing this work at the very moment when you have the um, Nazi-Soviet pact, when the Soviet Union signs an agreement with Germany saying, basically, don't invade us.
0: And it's disastrous for American communists in a lot of obvious ways, but it has this kind of silver lining in Alabama.
1: Right. So what happens is the the popular front kind of falls apart around this. And, you know, people could debate all day about the whether it was a good or bad policy. Mm-hmm. But for the U.S. Communist Party, it was a devastating policy because it showed a kind of reversal of fortunes. It was like, okay, we're not going to basically, we're going to take fighting fascism, not off the table, but that's not going to be our main thing. But in Alabama, it played out as, okay, now we don't have to bend over backwards, or bend over forwards, depending on how you think about it,
0: to basically look to, to build support. To kiss wealthy white liberals' asses who are not even positively responding to said ass-kissing.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. 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 And it also led to power struggles within those liberal organizations that were set up to bring them in, like the Southern Conference for Human Welfare, was radicalized as a result. There were no holds barred on either the legally young Southerners or the um, Southern Negro Youth Congress. And in fact, there was a publication called the Southern Almanac that came out, that became kind of like a de facto Communist Party publication. And many of the really amazing radicals who went on, white radicals especially, like Don West and people like that, were writing for the Southern Al- uh, Almanac. And so then we get into World War II, where 1941, the war starts, and then now there's a flip again, where the party's focus is on anti-fascism. Uh, but by then, the focus is on the war, But the Southern Negro Negro Youth Congress becomes the dominant force fighting for civil rights in World War II. And they build new alliances with folks on the left of the kind of NAACP orbit, like John LaFleur, for example, from Mobile, who's quite a militant himself. And they start to build power until 1948. In 1948, they hold the SNYC meeting there. And it ends up being the last one because that's when Bo Connor really makes a name for himself, you know, along with others. And they repress that meeting. They drive people out of the city and they kind of crush what was left of the Communist Party, which then is re- sort of resurrected again in the form of individuals in labor and Civil rights organizations
0: in 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 the state. We should talk a little bit um, about labor organizing, which was a big part of what communists were doing in Birmingham. And you write that initially the CP failed because their dual union strategy didn't make sense because, outside of some exceptions in the steel industry, there just weren't. There were no quote competing labor organizations, so that's the problem. But then, after the passage of the National Recovery National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, that that changed. What was the CP's dual union strategy, and why why did it become more successful as the New Deal labor regime took off? And then, just more generally, how and around what issues did communists mobilize workers, and how did they mobilize workers in these workplaces, in these mines, in these mills? where racial segregation was a tool used with great effect by the boss to divide and conquer workers.
1: So the Trade Union Unity League was formed as a kind of umbrella organization for this dual unionism strategy. And basically, dual unionism goes back to William Z. Foster, who was a syndicalist. I mean, much more than a communist initially. So and the idea was that they needed militant industrial unions. And they wanted to draw away from the established uh, AFL unions. Um, this is all before, again, this is all before the CIO <laughs> exists. Draw away through their militancy or at least pressure the mainstream unions to become more militant, if, if anything. If you can't draw them away, at least pressure them. Um, and that was part of the strategy. But it only works. In places where you have an established union uh, uh, presence, like waterfront workers, for example. National Maritime Union uh, was a really good example of a kind of successful uh, strategy. So in the South, they, you know, not one size fits all. So in some cases, they were the first unions uh, in certain industries. But the two big industries, the three big industries really, were, you know, mining, coal, and iron ore. Uh, steel, and textiles, textiles they never really made any. That headway. was all white. You no, know, they tr- that was all white, um, and that's part of the lesson is that you know, uh, he, despite the fact that the best labor organizer the party ever had in the South was a white man named Clyde Johnson, uh, Clyde who's from Duluth, Minnesota, and just completely courageous and someone I got to know very well in his in his li- last parts of his life despite the fact that he was a white organizer, he could only organize Black workers. I mean, he he could not win over most of the white workers because they were captured. So in many ways, the place that had the most support as a result of the New Deal, the National Industrial Recovery Act, uh, were those industries like steel and coal. And that's where the parties dual union strategy began to have some impact because, you know, one of the things that William Mitch of the steelworkers, or William Mitch accepted was the wage differentials imposed by the New Deal, which is to say that Southern workers made less than Northern workers. And so it, it didn't take that much effort on the part of communists in the um, and the opposition say, you know, now they're inside the union to say, you know, uh, we need to equalize that. You know, just because Southern Democrats tell us we should be paid less, we're still starving here. And that generates some support and kind of pushed the union in new directions. And certainly in the International Mine Milo Workers Union, which was probably the most left of the unions in Alabama, iron ore workers, Uh, they were formed in 1933. I mean, there there was no mine mill before 1933. I mean, you know, in terms of of being in Alabama. And their roots go way back to the Western Federation of Miners. Their roots go back to the IWW. But communists played a critical role in that. It was probably the strongest role um, in that union. And they were able to build uh, support that way but it was never easy, ever, even during the strike wave of 34, uh, when it seemed like you had like a lot of momentum. Organizing was hard for communists. If anything, the role that the communists played was to bring to the fore questions of racial justice, uh, issues of the franchise, you know, through the right to vote clubs when the CIO was formed, um, and issues of shop floor control, And one other thing is that what the Wagner Act also did was it allowed for, as we know, the National Labor Relations Board, elections for unions, but with those come competing company unions that also had the right to run elections. And so part of what the party was able to do was to convince people not to go with the company unions. So a lot of his agitprop work It was very, very important, Uh, organizing work, knowing the landscape. uh, And it just so happens that Black communists often made the best uh, labor labor organizers, because they knew the landscape, they were good organizers. And so someone like Eb Cox is a legend in Alabama trade union organizing. Uh, But he started out as a communist.
0: And then the next big change is the arrival of the CIO, which offers communists a big new opportunity to participate and lead more progressive unions. But the flip side of that, you write, is that communist labor organizers essentially subordinated themselves to the CIO during the Popular Front era. What did that mean for black communist workers and for the labor movement in general? And what did that subordination ultimately mean when the CIO was seized by the anti-communist reaction? that took hold in the late 1930s, this moment of the, the Little Red Scare?
1: Well, what's very important to realize is that their decision to subordinate themselves to CIO leadership was not a directive. It didn't come from the top of the party. This was strategic. And I think what they realized is that um, they, were, they were more concerned about the CIO winning than they were about trying to push the CIO left. They felt like they're very... The the very existence of an industrial union movement was itself left enough. And so a lot of folks became like very professional organizers.
0: Same ideals, different vehicle.
1: Right. Same ideals, different vehicle. But most importantly, in this setting, they did not announce their communist uh, bona fides or affiliations. Some people knew. But keep in mind... As you know, John L. Lewis was deeply anti-communist. He he was willing to to bring communists on because he knew they were the best organizers. But he also was like, you know, uh, uh-uh, we don't want their influence. We want their skills. Uh, and in Alabama, I think the the communists who came out came into the CIO understood that. So they kept a low profile while doing the work of organizing. But they also, I mean, to their credit, they fought for things that you don't think unions usually fight for. Uh, the right-to-vote clubs were products of the CIO. I mean, they, they, they existed before that, but the CIO captured them. They talked about pushing for voter registration for black and white voters. They saw the CIO as a possible political force. And they, uh, they become absorbed into the CIO. This, the mine mill was different in that they didn't care about communists. They invited communists. They embraced them. You can be an open communist. So by the time you get to like 1949, when you know, after uh, Taft-Hartley, Taft, part, part of the provisions of Taft-Hartley is that you had to sign an affidavit saying that you there's no communists in your organization, that you're not a communist. And so part of the split was... The CIO agreed to that. They had no issue with it. Um, some of the unions were like, we're not going to do it. And that's when the CIO leadership said, you know what? If you don't do it, you're out. We'll kick you out. That wasn't necessary. That was, Taft-Hartley didn't, de- didn't demand that. What Taft-Hartley demanded was that you sign an affidav- David. What it meant was that th- the, the penalty for not signing was you don't have access to National Labor Relations Board elections. You can't go through the process. They would deny you that right. And so the fact is the entire CIO could have said, absolutely not, we boycott. They could have had a general strike. <laughs> they could, I mean, and, and, and after World War II, that's sort of what happened. What we see in 1945-46 was one of the biggest strike waves in U.S. history before the 1970s. And some of those strike waves were against Union leadership. There were wildcat strikes, similar to the wildcat strikes that took place during the war, which were often over race. And so they set the stage, possibly, for resisting Cold War labor policies, but leadership at CIO embraced them ultimately. And that led to the expulsion of the International Mine, Mills, and Workers Union, along with the electrical workers and maritime workers and all those unions. The Food and tobacco workers these were the left unions. These were the ones that were
0: kicked out, and the unions that got expelled then got raided and destroyed yes. essentially absolutely i mean the u e still exists but and is led by amazing progressive people, but their footprint is a just a small fraction of yes. their size once upon a time. Right.
1: They got raided um and they also got experienced the repressive force of the state. They lost members, they lost leaders, people were jailed. Uh, And it was just, it was devastating. Um, But in Alabama, one of the main leaders of of Mind Mill was an African-American named Asbury Howard, who ended up playing a real critical role in both civil rights and politics, Black politics in Alabama coming out. And one thing I do write about briefly is the treacherous role that the NAACP played in undermining mine mill. Herbert Hill, who we later know as a major sort of scholar of of U.S. labor, went down to Alabama, you know, on behalf of of the NAACP and did his own investigation and basically promoted the expulsion of mine mill and called out communists who were in the organization and basically red-baited them uh, and so the NYCP in their own ongoing efforts to overthrow, to undermine any kind of left presence, or communist presence at least, that, you know, Herbert Hill becomes you know, known as a kind of heroic liberal figure, uh, is one of those who undercut the union. So it wasn't just a kind of federal repression. It was a repression coming from all different directions because of the, just the, overwhelming culture of anti-communism and you know you got to imagine what it meant for so many people who joined the party in 1930 31 or 32 to have gone through 20 years just about you know risking their lives getting beaten jailed all that and suddenly the whole thing is crushed this kind of disappears and it's remade i mean hosea hudson leaves alabama he ends up, you know, living in, you know, in New Jersey and, and up in the north. A lot of folks end up having to flee. The Jacksons, Burnham—I mean, Louis Burnham—dies in 1957, but they all have to leave Alabama after all that work. Um, and it's almost like starting from scratch with the civil rights movement. But when they do reemerge, uh, and when SNCC, for example, comes to Alabama. Whose homes do they stay in in the black in in um in the black belt? At the homes of former sharecroppers union leaders, you know? And so it reconnects at the
0: end. We just kind of sketched out the trajectory of the the CP and of the CIO and communists within the CIO. What about the SCU's decline in the sharecroppers union? You're right that it was complex. You had the CP Central Committee turning away from role organizing during the Popular Front, you cite the rise of the socialist-led Southern Tenant Farmers Union and a radicalizing National Farmers Union and with its Alabama chapter, the Alabama Farmers Union, which had locals in the, the northern upcountry among poor white farmers. But at the end of the day, I think you argue that perhaps none of these factors really contended with just these enormous changes in the cotton industry that were taking place pushing sharecroppers off the land and into the great migration
1: right that led to the d- the demise I mean so the C- when the CIO started to organize rural workers through Yucca power they form a chapter basically to take over the sharecroppers union's um, jurisdiction and for them they're not they don't even know how to organize sharecroppers. They can only organize, they only know how to organize wage laborers. And so the focus now is on wage workers who don't want to be wage workers picking cotton when the industry is transforming so that you basically have these amazing, huge mechanical cotton pickers and hardly any labor, you know. So the labor force is disappearing. The sharecroppers, former sharecroppers union is moving west. To Louisiana, uh, there's some organizing taking place, but again, it's the great migration, it's the collapse of the, uh, the uh, cotton industry, and it's also the, the takeover by the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, which also gets folded into Yucca Power, you know, which is Canterbury Agricultural Workers uh, Union, Industrial Union, and, and it just sort of fades away. Uh, what doesn't fade away, though, are those people who experience uh, union organizing. They end up doing things like running for office. Charles Smith, you know, becomes a local political leader, elected official in uh, Montgomery County. Members of the Deacons De- Deacons for Defense, uh, which defended in Louisiana, um, in Louisiana, some of those folks came out of the um, the Louisiana Farmers Union. Uh, so there's a legacy, but it doesn't take place, you know, in the rural areas in the same place. Um, I, I would argue, and I don't say this in the book, but if you look at something like the Mississippi Freedom Labor Union in Mississippi, that there's probably a direct link or connection because that union was a rural union. It was a union of, of, of agricultural workers and, and sharecroppers. It wasn't necessarily an industrial union. And so you see the continuation of that legacy. But, uh, but to me, the story, which someone else needs to follow up on, is what happened to those 10,000 or 15,000 people if, if many of them migrated north? What did they bring with them? What memories? What political organizing work did they do? Did they give up? Or did they continue uh, kind of in this kind of river of struggle?
0: You write, quote, In our current moment, anti-capitalism and struggles against state violence and incarceration tend to be separate movements. For communists and their allies, especially in the Deep South, they were inextricably bound together. The African Americans who made up the Alabama radical movement experienced and opposed race and class oppression as a totality. To close out, how did class struggle and anti Racist struggle becomes separated from one another, not even just separated, but too often, far too often held out as somehow contradictory political projects. And do you see steps finally being taken today to recombine them to fight this totality of oppression in the way Alabama communists once did?
1: <laughs> so, on the question of how did it happen, well, I went to sleep one night and woke <laughs> up, and all of a sudden, it's like I don't even recognize some of these. Um, these tendencies. And I literally, it's like it happened so fast because one of the things I've been arguing for years is that we don't even do a good job of understanding the class dimensions and class critique coming out of what's called the civil rights movement, that SNCC had a class critique. They actually had an anti-capitalist position, you know, and we, there's so much evidence for it, but we don't look at that. We, we, we tell the story of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party as if it ends in, in Atlantic City in 1964. But when you look at their, their platform in 1968, it is deeply anti-capitalist, deeply anti-U.S. empire, deeply you know struggling around the question of reproductive labor and compensation for that. I mean, it's a very different kind of thing. So to me... Every movement I've ever been a part of, and I've been a part of, you know, I've been, a, I was a member of the Communist Workers Party. I've been a part of lots of different movements. Even if there was a debate about the relative weight of race and class, which is, I think, is a use, useless debate. Debate too. Um, there was no question that these things operate and function together, and they're fought together. Even the the unfair attacks on mainstream feminists uh, in the nineteen sixties and seventies. The Socialist feminists, radical feminists also talked about anti-racism being really fundamental in class politics, as well as anti fighting patriarchy, that these things are together. The Kobahi River Collective, they were socialists. They, they, they announced it. They made it clear that capitalism is not going to save anybody. And so we get to, when I wrote that forward, it was a critical moment around 2014, uh, 2015 when you begin to see in certain places, like Ferguson, for example, where there was clearly a kind of race and class critique on the ground, because they're fighting against the extractive processes of state repression, taking money from poor Black people to basically pay for government. And there was an understanding of that. But then there emerged slowly a kind of popularity around a particular kind of Afro-pessimist position that, I say particular kind because, it, you know, there's many different manifestations of it that basically didn't say that class doesn't matter, but that anti-Blackness as is the way that modern, the modern world was s- structured. And with it comes the a similar position on the part of the Black elite to the Black poor and working class, that they occupy a similar position within the structure of anti-blackness and therefore they're all basically slaves, and that all white people irrespective of their class somehow are all anti-black and therefore participate in the reproduction of this system. Um, and that's not to say that it's not working class anti-blackness, but it's to say that, that even working class anti-blackness is part of a class you know, politics, class analysis of what Is required to be able to reproduce the class as a subordinate, landless, impoverished, immiserated class without the means of production. And so our analysis has to be better. You have to go back to like old stuff to be able to come back to this. And I think there's a struggle right now over this. So what ends up happening is, and I think the flip side of this, is there's a critique, an unfair critique of anti-state violence of anti-police brutality struggles as if they're not class struggles. And part of what I said about Ferguson is that I argue that it is very much a class struggle against racism.
0: In the same way the Communist Party saw the Scottsboro Boys as class war prisoners.
1: Exactly, exactly, you know. And so what ends up happening is that the critique of struggles against racism often gets Get dismissed as race reductionism. That is that that the only way we understand the reproduction of this uh, of inequality and repression and violence and, and oppression is because of racism, and that there is a position that some people take. There's, there's a whole new body of work on implicit bias and how we got to deal with racism. Racism becomes like personal work. Racism do the do the work, do the work, you know. like Psychothe- and then, It's all
0: about psychotherapy for white people. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it, it is. It is therapeutic. And, and even the way that people experience racism is on the same terms. That is to say that they don't feel seen, that they feel violated, that this is a kind of violence. Um, and so imagine if you thought that way and you're in a meeting trying to figure out how to build a class struggle and someone says to you, they say, comrade N-word. Now, and that's, that, that's in the book. I mean, people say, and then, and then, you know, and then all these comments like, well, you know, um, comrade, you can't really use that word here, you know. <laughs> and so, well, what, you know, but they still stay together. In this circumstance, that would be trauma. And that moment of trauma is like, oh, my God, we got to not only expel you, but punish you, and then figure out how to wait to, like, revive this person who had to hear the N-word, right? That's the conditions that make it impossible to transcend the very ideological chains, really, that are holding back our capacity to build a movement, you know? And so I'm seeing, I'm very heartened by some of the more recent kind of struggles where people are really seeing themselves as abolitionists, an abolitionist, but also thinking about uh, workers uh, at the Amazon plant in Bessemer and thinking about steel workers and thinking about internationalism and thinking about, you know, labor and class and the carceral state and feminism and patriarchal violence and all that stuff together. And I see that more and more. And I see that people are not willing to go for what Amir Baraka calls the okie Dog, th- the idea that somehow... It's like the it's like West Side Story, race reductionist versus the class reductionist, and who's go, who's got the sharper knives. Um, and of course, no one's claiming the mantle; they're just using it to blame each
0: other. Yeah, it's just like a, a it's all mutually constitutive of a hell discourse. I'm a bit younger than you; I'm 38, mm-hmm. but I came of age in the late 90s on mm-hmm. the left, and even at that point, it never occurred to me that there was any tension here. Right. Like that, oh, yeah, being on the left means opposing racism and capitalism and imperialism, all of those things. And then today we have this like, yeah, these various sides that are mutually constitutive of a just mind-numbing discourse that entirely misses the point. Right, right. So I would
1: blame, I put the blame very squarely on what I call the the race entrepreneurs or the racism and entrepreneurs and a certain vein of Afro-pessimism on the one hand, and then also those who are trying to restore, and, I, and they're not new. They've been around. I've been, I've been debating the Todd Gitlins for, for years, but they were around back then in the 1990s where it's like, don't you know, it's class stupid, but for them, it was enlightenment. The enlightenment ideology was the way to get to class. And, so for, and that's a very old, old position, That is to say that in order for us to build a class movement, we've got to forget race, forget gender, forget them, and then go to what really matters, and that's a a losing strategy. But I think that we're now at a point where we're kind of moving that, moving behind, you know, beyond that. Hopefully,
0: and ironically, it has sort of a Clintonite or more, maybe more generally, social democratic heritage, this idea, this kind of class reductionism, whereas what your book shows is that the communist heritage is not class reductionist at all. <laughs> exactly. That's
1: the takeaway. The communist heritage, and it's not just Alabama, but the communist heritage in much of the United States and elsewhere is not class reductionism at all. Um, it doesn't mean they didn't make errors, but it does mean that they understood how these things were connected. And that's what we need to know. You know, we may be more sophisticated now, but we have to be able to see how these things are connected.
0: Well, Robin D.G. Kelly, thank you very much.
1: Oh, of course, of course. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking to you and, you know, have me back. We'll have another conversation.
0: Robin D.G. Kelly is a professor of history at UCLA. And the author of numerous articles and books, including the book we talked about today, Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that labor in white skin cannot emancipate itself where it is branded in black skin, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also take a moment to leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you just telling other people about the show. Please do make propaganda for us. And find us at patreon.com slash thedig, and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.